AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest today is manager Harvey Lisper, who's got a new book, My Life Managing 10cc, Herman's Hermits, and many more. Harvey, you started out as a songwriter. Tell us about that. I started out very young, learning the piano, uh, traditionally. Got very fed up of that, and then started to learn how to vamp. My auntie Sylvia, my mother's sister, was very efficient at playing music on the by ear. She could play any song you liked, and I was always envious of her. And I started to play by ear and I learnt. I decided I'm not going to do scales all day and night. I'm going to try and do my own thing. So I started to play a little bit of music because I could read music. And my first song I ever did was uh, Smile uh, in F, one flat. And uh, it was quite good, actually. And then later on, I played the piano, always played the piano. There was a piano in the house. It was part of the house, an upright piano in the kitchen. Teeny room, but it had a big piano. And uh, then when Skiffle came into England much later, uh, there was a Skiffle group that played in a jazz club that I went to. And I got friendly with the the leader called Paul Beatty, who now lives in Canada. And he had a, a Skiffle group. And he came back to a party at my house, and he taught me some chords on the on the guitar. With one finger, I could play Takes a Worried Man. You just fit one finger around and you play all the blues chords. And then I started playing a bit and I, and I started writing songs, trying songs myself. This was, you know, in the about 62, before anything had happened as far as the Beatles or anything like that. And I thought, right, I'll write these songs and I'm going to try and get them to artists. There were songs that were like, uh, how do you do it? Or the Freddy's, do the Freddy. They weren't 
masterpieces. They weren't any good at all, but I wanted to get them to somebody and to do it. And that's how I started writing songs. And um, ultimately, I got one which was the B-side of I'm Into Something Good with Herman's Hermits, which was our first band. And that was very lucky, but that's a long story to get to there. But so that was really it. I just wrote songs. I love music. I loved all the 60s music. We were inundated with American trash and English singers with American accents. It was just dirge <laughs> music we were inundated with. Okay. The Beatles broke almost two years earlier in the UK before the US. When you talk about skiffle, etc., what was music like and what did it mean in the early 60s in the UK? Um, well, it was American crooner. Well, no, we had, no, no, that's not true. In the mid-50s, we got Bill Haley. And then from Bill Haley, we had rock and roll. We had Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, you name it. All the, those are all the greats of that, uh, Little Richard. We had lots of rock and roll. But before that, for the last 20 years prior to that, we had... Moon and June and Crooners and Love and June and, you know, awful songs. But uh, there was Frank Sinatra. There were a few exceptions with some very good songs. But and the English people in the early 60s were listening to, we listened to all the doo-wop from America. And then it was mostly the Chuck Berry and rock and roll sort of thing inundated the airwaves. Uh, when I say airwaves, that was a joke. There was only one station, Radio 1, on the BBC before all the commercial radio had started. So when I was young, I had to listen to Radio Luxembourg, which was 208 on the crystallized little radios that we had to fiddle around with, or American Forces Network in Europe, AFM. And that's where we got all our good music from America from, as opposed to just the crooners and all the Johnny Rays and Frankie Lanes and everything else that was poured into the radio. So there's a concoction of music Skiffle was really because everybody could play the instrument. And there was an artist called Lonnie Donegan that started playing all these songs, which were basically American folk songs. Uh, Cumberland Gap. Uh, it wasn't Cumberland in Cumberland. It was <laughs> something else. Um, Midnight Special. Doesn't mean anything to anybody in England because there's no Midnight Specials in England. It's a train in America. And we were inundated with all these songs. And they were really good and very popular. And everybody could be in a skiffle group because they didn't have to play an instrument. They played a washboard for, for a drum sound and they all sang together. And it was quite exciting. And there's a Rock Island line. Uh, I can't, there's about 20, Bring a Little Water Sylvie. All these songs were basically American folk songs, so maybe country folk songs, whatever, or traditional folk songs. They were probably 100 years old. And we all played them and that was it. And that's how Skiffle started. That's how the guitar started. That's how the Beatles started. They, you know, they played Skiffle. They played that type of music. Maggie, Maggie May, or whatever they played, folk songs. Okay. So was this just a lark that you wrote songs or did you have a burning desire? Was everybody, you know, writing songs or were you like the only one? No, I had a few friends and uh, we were just playing around on guitars. We were just harmonizing with each other and playing, playing the music of the day, you know, whatever it was, whether Italian music it was very popular in England at the times so we played Volare, Marina, Marini, all that sort of Italian stuff was popular. And I just, and folk songs. And of course I was the party jester. I love Calypso and I could make any song up lyrically. I could really get clever with the lyrics. So I, I could go to a party and start 
talking about all the people in the room in a calypso. And I was pretty, pretty adept at calypso for some reason. Maybe I've got roots, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. So one of the big points in the book is you talk about the rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool. Now, in America, we first hear the Beatles, we think of Liverpool and London. So what was the landscape in the UK in the early 60s like? Um, well, Manchester was the biggest club town in um, in England. So there's more live music in Manchester and well, London as well. I mean, Liverpool was third. I mean, Liverpool was not really in it as far as live music was concerned in those days. There was lots of clubs in Manchester and the Rolling Stones would come and play at the Oasis or all the bands that subsequently became enormous played in the clubs in Manchester. So there was a very healthy club scene in Manchester. Um, Liverpool um, happened when the, the Beatles started. It was... They'd worked at the Star Club in in Hamburg for a while, and they were getting their own following before they met Epstein or anything. They were working very hard getting their band together. I, I believe that's correct. And they they just, when they happened, it was the most magical thing that ever happened in the 60s, probably. It was just incredible. All of a sudden, we had great music. It was English. It was humorous. It was brilliant, and we all fell in love with it. I mean, I never, every time a Beatles album or record was released, I got it on the first morning of release, and I wore the album out before it. anybody probably had heard it. It just was berserk on the Beatles. I, it was just appeal to me. I mean, my background in music was Italian opera, which was peddled through my house from my father, who loved opera. He was a violinist and also a saxophone player in, in the band during the war. I was... I was just had that, and my next door neighbour was mad on classical music. And then I went to synagogue, and the beautiful music from the synagogue, all the shul music and the fantastic choirs they had there. So I had all that music going around my head, and I just I love music, and it wasn't just specifically any brand of music. I, even to, up to today, I still can like a good song, or if something's good, it appeals to me. I don't say, oh, well, it's always better in the older days, because new things are great sometimes. Rarely, but sometimes. Okay, you mentioned synagogue, and you go into your Jewish roots in the book. To what degree was anti-Semitism prevalent at that point in the 60s, and how did that affect you both personally and in business? Um, well, growing up, there was there was a tremendous amount of resentment, lack of knowledge about Jewish people. I mean, went through all my school days and everything, whatever school I was at, because I didn't. I started off going to really Orthodox Jewish schools when I was like six, so I got a tremendous grounding in Orthodoxy and I know all the prayers and everything. But um, when I went to the non-Jewish schools, Cheetham Hill Methodist School, Salford Grammar School, there was overt anti-Semitism, because basically the people there are conditioned to believe that all Jews were rich. And comparatively speaking, yes, maybe I was more wealthy from a middle class as opposed to the working class, which was the, the school inundated with really low working class people, very low wages. And they thought, oh, you Jews have got everything. But of course, that isn't true. 
I mean, there's millions of Jews that are starving, and you know, there were lots of working class Jews at that level. But as far as anti Semitism were concerned, these kids believed all Jews were rich, all Jews did this, all Jews that. And I, as a minority in England, I had to be on my best behavior all the time. The only time I evolved out of my, I, I don't call it an inferiority complex, an awareness of being Jewish was when I went to Israel. And I, I, it was just, it was like a breath of fresh air to me. I, all of a sudden, I was, I didn't have to be quiet. I didn't have to watch my P's and Q's. On Friday night, I didn't have to stay in like a lunatic and not be allowed out because then my uncle there had a meal, a Friday night meal with the candles and everything. And after it was finished, lo and behold, the cards came out, poker, gambling, God knows what, smoking, things that didn't happen in my house in England because it was Friday night. And you didn't do that. You just obeyed the law. Oh, and uh, that's so. Yes, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and the anti-Semitism went through. Through my wife, found it as well. She went to a school, a school called Lady uh, Harrogate's Ladies College, and she was very good at tennis, really good. And they wanted her to go to Wimbledon to play tennis. And um, the teacher came up to her and said, "Look, I'm terribly sorry, Carol." You, they, you can't go to Wimbledon, they won't accept you. And she said, why? She said, because no Jews are allowed there. So this is 1954, and this is Wimbledon, right? So it was rife throughout the whole country. Also, you couldn't get a job. You know, I wanted to be a stockbroker. That was my aim. I didn't want to be an accountant. You know, I'm a gambler, so I was always gambling on stocks and shares. There were no Jewish stockbrokers. It was my aim to become one. But... But, I mean, we're just everywhere. You, the jobs weren't available for you. You weren't uh, bankers or anything. Your jobs were limited from coming over from Europe and everything. You had certain jobs you had to do. They were open to you, money lending, whatever, bank, you know, that sort of thing, or peddling or m working on the markets, selling stuff on markets. It, there weren't that many openings for Jewish people, really. So a lot of them became doctors and intellectual sort of thing and that differentiated liverpool from manchester as well because uh, manchester was all the eastern european immigrants whereas liverpool the irish came in and inundated uh, they were all with an irish background and they kind of looked at each other i mean they, they, they kind of looked down on them the europeans you know they're not cultured you know and that was the situation and in your business career, to what degree did you experience anti-Semitism? Oh, very little. I think the Jewish people control the entertainment business. They controlled Hollywood from the turn of the uh, completely. It was all Jewish people. They completely controlled all the Broadway musical writers and everything were all Jewish. In England, the biggest agency was the grade agency, which controlled about everything in England. Every every artist was a member of the grades, and I didn't find I didn't find any anti-Semitism. There might have been anti-Semitism started with the punk era, but that was in the eighties. Uh, when we st when I started, I didn't find anything in the music. In fact, it was possibly even an advantage to be Jewish, possibly. Because it was like a network of Jewish people controlling everything for the record label, the record companies, everybody. They were, we had infiltrated that. Maybe that was because of the artistic side. And it was an opening for Jews who were always musical and liked music and were cultured and wanted to get in there. And it was an avenue where they could get in.
So how did you meet Herman and the Hermits, as they were called then? Well, I was re writing these mediocre songs and getting no success with anybody. Nobody wanted to know. So I thought, right, well, I'll get my own band. and I'll, They'll play my music. And my father, who was very musical, uh, he sort of was rather sarcastic about my songwriting, but I took it in good faith. Um, so I arranged, um, a cons uh, arranged a, something with the Manchester Evening News for new groups. And I was going to go and see this new group in a church hall in Davy Hume. And I went there and Herman and the Hermits were appearing. They were playing Chuck Berry. I saw standing there. They actually had it. Mrs. Brown was actually in the act at that stage. She was played in there. And all the normal songs that every group played, um, Needles and Pens or whatever, anything that was American that they could adapt, they did it. Do a diddy diddy, whatever. And uh, after each number, all these girls charged the stage. I was screaming. I, I thought it was like a Beatles concert. I thought, God, I, I've won the National Lottery here. This is fantastic. I subsequently found out that they'd planted in the audience lots of their friends and asked them to scream and shout, telling them that an American manager was coming to see the band. <laughs> I went back to Peter's house after the concert and I started fiddling on the piano because I was playing the piano. He had a piano in the house, a huge piano. And I started fiddling um, Ray Charles, tell me what I say. And Peter said, would you like to join the band? I said, no, I don't want to join the band. I want to manage the band and I want... I want you to do my songs. So they did Your Hand in Mine as a B-side, as I say. And I got a huge check at Christmas. And I showed it to my father. And my father said, well, maybe I was wrong. Uh, but he wasn't wrong. <laughs> he was right. It was just a stupid way that people that wrote B-sides could get half the mechanicals, which is a nonsense. So I got the same for mechanicals as Carol King, and I can't claim to be in the same light years as her as far as her songwriters, and Goffin, of course. Okay, let's go a little bit slower. You're working as an accountant. You're writing songs. How do you decide to be a manager? Was it something you just saw the band and said, hey, I'm a manager? How did that happen? Well, I think that happened basically because of the Beatles and Epstein's success. I mean, I think I was writing the songs and trying to do all the things I was doing, but then I don't know what year the Beatles started. Was it 63? They had a few hits, and Brian Epstein, who was a Jewish boy from Liverpool, started to get a lot of press. In the, certainly in the Jewish community, he was like an icon, and I thought, well, he's had no background in music, he knows nothing about management of acts or anything. Well, why can't I do that? So that was that was the thing that sparked me into wanting to be a manager. It wasn't the original intention at all. The original intention was to write songs, have loads of hits, and earn the royalties. My envy was always book writers who just thought, God, they write a book, they go to bed, and they're Hemingway, and, you know, the, the royalties come in. You don't do anything else. And I thought, and I'm like that. I'm not very... I'm a bit, I know when it's selfish or uh, my idea of earning money the easy way. I don't, it's, it's a, just a, it's a fault of mine. But I always, I always envied the songwriters for that reason. Not the musical songwriters, the book writers. Those are the people that were the big things in the 40s and 50s. Okay, you have no background in the music business. You can play a little piano, skiffle, calypso, you can write songs. 
And then you said, well, Brian Epstein is doing it. Why can't I? Is that your personality that you're just as good as anybody else or you can do it? What is it about you that allows you to do this? Being swamped as a child by love from being the first grandchild of a a close-knit family, always spoiled, ruined. I was infallible. I didn't have any, I had no fear. That's what I said. I wanted to become a stockbroker. There were no Jewish stockbrokers. That wasn't going to bother me. When I met um, now King Charles III at a concert of 10cc, um, I was introduced to him afterwards and I said, Oh, did, did you like? Well, I don't really know uh, of 10cc. So, of course, you're not meant to ask royalty any questions, but it took no, I didn't take a note of that. I said, But have you never heard I'm not in love? You know, it's on the it's on the radio all the time, and he said, "Well, no, I don't really, um, I don't really get a chance to hear that very much. Um, I do listen to Radio Four sometimes on my way to Ascot, and I thought there's the future king of England that didn't know the first thing about the pop music business, and I was shocked. And I think Princess Diana sorted him out, and no doubt now he's an expert." <laughs> This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu With Lucky Land Slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky No, no, nothing like that It's just these cash prizes add up quick So I suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky Play for free at luckylandslots.com Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, a little bit slower. You go to the gig, you go to Peter Noon's house. How does it end up that you progress and get a record deal? Right, well, the first thing a manager had to do in those days was to get a record deal. That was the golden rule. You've got a band, you get a record deal, you have a hit and so forth. So I fill the date sheet completely. I mean, Herman's Hermits were working seven nights a week, sometimes three times a night. 
ending up in some drunken Irish club at two o'clock in the morning to do their last set. They're very wealthy because they had no mortgages, no two Ferraris in the garage, no wives, no nothing. They were all single, 15, 16, 17. And at the end of the day, they split a, a, a pounds. They got about 30, 40 pounds cash, which was a lot of money in those days. So that was that was really exciting. And the, the with a full date sheet, it helped because I knew that if I got somehow to EMI or somebody, I could... Um, I could get a record deal or I can get them to see the band working and see this date sheet, etc. And uh, I was, we did a lunchtime session at the Plaza Ballroom and I went to the manager's office, a gentleman called Terry Devine, and on the table there was a piece of paper with EMI headline. I'd, could I borrow that letter for a second? And I looked at it, had Derek Everett at the bottom. So I decided, okay, let's do it. Let's write to a Derek Everett. And I wrote to Derek, we've heard all about you. And uh, we'd like to come and meet you. I've got this band. Would you be interested in meeting me? And very kindly wrote back the next day and said, yeah, come down to London. I ran down to London as quickly as I could. And I went into EMI's offices in Manchester Square, where I saw Derek Everett. And as I walked through the door, he says, you know, I've got nothing to do with A&R. I don't have anything to do with the artistic side of the bands. I just put physical records into dance halls. So I was really... Totally, totally shocked. So I'm sitting there and I'm depressed. My chin's down. I thought, what an idiot I've been. I've written this letter to him, telling him how wonderful it is. And he's a completely non-entity. Um, but just as I left there, he said, by the way, though, I'm, I know there's a new producer called Mickey Most. And he's just having some success with um, the, a group called The Animals. Would you be interested in meeting him? So I thought, yeah, well, I'm, while I'm in London, I might as well make some use of this journey. And I went to see Mickey Most, and I presented him with the photograph of Herman and the Hermits, as they were when I first saw them. And he looked at them, and he said, yeah, this looks quite, a, looks quite interesting. And then I went back to Manchester, and I kept phoning his office. Would he come up and see the band? Nothing happened, nothing happened. And I decided to have a brainwave. I'm going to send him two first-class air tickets, and I'm going to put him at the best hotel in Manchester in the Midland overnight and see if he'll come up. So I sent them, and he got the envelope with the tickets, and he came up. And I took him to see Herman and the Hermits at the Beachcomber in um, Bolton. And he, he, he said, yeah, they're quite good. They're all right. And I had a, a really clapped-out car in those days. It was my mother's. It was kind of, I think it was a Ford Prefect or a Triumph Herald. It was just a little piece of tin. But I'd had the, I was so mad on music that I'd invested a fortune in this record player, the one of the Philips record players. I don't know whether they had them in America. You could put a 45 in it. And when you went over a bump, the suspension didn't affect the record. It still played. And on the way back to the hotel, he said, by the way, I've, I've got a song here you might be interested in. And I had very good ears. I mean, I could always pick hits, even from early days. As soon as I heard something once, I knew whether I had a feeling I knew it was a hit. Usually it was. And um, he put on this song. It was Earl Jean's I'm Into Something Good, which apparently just entered the American charts at about 92. And um, I thought, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Can we do it? Can we do it? He says, yes, if you get rid of two members of your band. I thought, so I've had the good and the bad, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly has got me getting rid of them. But, <laughs> you know, so it wasn't very, 
it was a mixed thing, but the song was so great. I went back to Peter's house and I, I told Peter, look, we've got to get rid of two of the group. And it's very hard because they were an integral part of the early group. And it's not easy. But we, we said to the guy, um, look, Alan, you've got to leave the band. There's nothing we can do. Um, if we want to get a record deal, and if we don't get a record deal, we're not going to get anywhere. And Alan knew he wasn't that great as a bass player. He went with Peter to the cavern to see the Beatles. And his only comment was, oh, God, we're fucked. <laughs> you know, as he realised he, he couldn't play the he couldn't <laughs> play the bass like that. So he, he was depressed even then, which was six months earlier. So anyhow, uh, he walked out of the room in a storm, and I, I was a bit sad. And Peter, and also I was scared. I mean, his father had been convicted of some capital crime and was in jail, and he was a fierce-looking guy. You don't want to mess with him. And I thought, he'll be coming with a knife for the next two weeks. I'd have to protect myself and be, keep my eyes over my head. So anyhow, I, um, I got in the car, which was a van. We had a van which took all the equipment around in with Peter, and we drove out of Peter's house. And as we went in the road, Alan Wrigley was lying across the middle of the road, and I had to swerve to me to to miss him, and I thought, oh, it was so it was so awful. I mean, at the time, it was a relief getting it done, but it was it was an awful uh, awful experience. And then we evolved into getting new members of the band, and everybody we put in was an excellent musician, and the music improved tremendously as far as the actual physical playing was concerned. And some of the band didn't people like Derek Leckenby um, and Barry Whitwam, who came later on to be drummer and, and, and uh, a lead guitarist, that, that they didn't want, everybody had heard about Herman and the Hermits because they were working everywhere and nobody was impressed at the time. But when they saw the date sheet, uh, Lex said, well, you know, this is good. This looks all right. So they joined because of that. All my friends kept telling me what a load of rubbish this band is. Why don't I get a proper job, get an accountancy job, stop messing around with all these people? Then we had a number one hit with I'm in something good. And they said, oh, well, it's only be a one hit wonder. You know, the really happy Jewish background sarcasm was rife at the time because they weren't impressed with Herman and the Hermits musically. Okay. And then Show Me Girl was a miss. And I thought, well, maybe they're right. But after that, after 10 hits, they stopped telling me they were a load of rubbish. Okay. In the interim, after finding the band, you raised some money. Tell me about that. Yes, I needed money. I'm not sure. Yeah, we just needed money originally for clothes and things like that. So four people put up £55 each. And uh, we, they were all wealthy businessmen. And I worked the band, had a full date sheet, and they were all lovely people, these people. My cousin Jeffrey Greenberg, um, Raymond Abramson and Brian Joseph, they were the partners. And they were all wealthy in their own right from really successful p businesses. And I needed, I think, a 1,000 or 2,000 pounds ultimately to get a new van because the van disintegrated. It was doing so much work. And they didn't want to really put any more money into it, okay? Because as I say, everybody was laughing at us sort of thing. And that's when uh, I got involved with Charlie Silverman, who was also a very wealthy father. He made money going on the gold trail, the Yukon or something. Vastly wealthy, a 
flew planes and God knows what in the 40s. Uh, my grandmother used to go mad because Charlie's father used to fly over in one of these single-engine planes and flip it over, over the back garden, and she trying to impress, you know, and she was really fed up with him. Uh, anyhow, so the, the I went to the boys. I said, look, if you're not going to... Um, if you're not going to um, carry on or put more money in, would I be able to buy you back? And they all agreed to take the money back that they put in, and they were happy. There was no resentment. So I moved in with Charlie. And then we wrote songs with Charlie as well. Okay, a little bit slower. Mickey Mouse comes up. You play the song in your record player in the car. How long till you record on into something good and what was the recording session like? One incidental thing was everybody I touched in those days turned to gold. So although Mickey Most had had some success, as soon as we got together with him, House of the Rising Sun was the record that came out, which <laughs> made him the biggest thing in the world, which was lucky for us and lucky for him. Um, probably three or four months for us to, to get, rec we recorded it, I think, in July, and it came out in August. And um, I met Mickey for the first time the November before, and probably by the time I got him, yeah, it's probably all within six or eight months this happened, all this happened. Um, what was the second part of your question? So what was the actual session like? What was Mickey's magic, if anything? Oh, it was a very, um, he was completely dictatorial about the session. The boys went in, it was three hours, I don't remember anything about it because I was outside the studio, but they went and they did it. The, the B-side was knocked out. I mean, everything was done very quickly. It had a very good pianist that played the piano part called, I think, Roger Webb. It was very good. And it was, and the boys sang very well and they, they played. I thought it was okay. It was a very nice record. And after three hours, everybody went back to Manchester. I mean, it was like, drove down into the studio, three hours, Back, out, gone. And that's it. And then the rest is all taken over by Mickey Most and EMI or whatever they do with the records to get it out. We'd done our bit. We'd driven down, spent three hours, very little, I don't know, it was little preparation in a way. I don't know what preparation Mickey did in the background, whether he used, um, I can't remember, in, and I'm in something good, I really can't remember what sort of arrangements or what sort of instrumentation he used on top of everything. I don't know. But subsequently on future records, he used Jimmy Page. John Paul Jones arranged everything. Every orchestral bit for Herman Sermits was arranged by John Paul Jones. Big Jim Sullivan played on things. Clem Cattini played. I mean, Mickey only used the best people, which was a shame for Herman Sermits, who weren't allowed to develop musically, although potentially... They might have been tremendous, but because every time Mickey used the session man because of the way he did it, and that's the you you couldn't really argue with it because while he's giving you hit after hit after hit, what do you say? You don't want to to change um, change the boat. Okay, the record comes out in August. Tell me about your experience of its success. It came in the charts, I think, in the forties. I went from twenty three to. Eight to three to one, and uh, was kicked off by Pretty Woman, I think, by Roy Orbison. Um, oh, it, it, Peter became very um, 
very photogenic, very in every newspaper. It was a very big thing. Herman's Hermits were really, you know, the flavour of the month. And I'm into something good, which is such a wonderful song, such an uplifting song. And, you know, it's one of those songs like In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry. You knew first time you hear it, it's an absolute smash. And so was I'm into something good. It was like a one above one, you know, one's a one, a real one. And uh, we were in heaven. Obviously, all our bookings went up, the prices went up, money went up. And um, we had strange things happen. Um, you know, it started to happen in America. You know, went out on MGM. Well, a little bit slower. When do you get the MGM deal? And why MGM? At the time, MGM had a couple of other hit acts, but it was really a tertiary label compared to the other ones. We had no control over that whatsoever. Everything we did was guided by Mickey Most. Mickey Most was guided by the infamous, famous Alan Klein. And anything that happened there would have been done probably initially by Alan Klein, subsequently through Mickey Most. And uh, whatever happened, all the huge deals we did, Alan Klein was kind of somehow involved. So we didn't do very much. So how long after the record comes out in the UK, does it come out in the US? And then when it's successful, how do you decide to go to the US and capitalize on that? I'm trying to work out whether it seems to me that when I went into the office one morning, which is a smelly office in Manchester on the second floor above a Chinese restaurant with curry well, going right through the smell of curry. It was awful. It was an embarrassing office, about very small. There were two men standing in the, in the doorway on a Monday morning. One had a cigar, which is about two feet long, and, uh, and the other one had a seersucker suit on. And are you Harvey Lisberg? Yeah, I'm Harvey Lisberg. Oh, we've come to give you a film offer for Peter Noon. And then we got, and I said, there's no way. We, we can't. We're fully booked. We haven't got time to do it. There's no way we can do this. And um, they said, well, can we come into the office? So I invited them into the office. Very embarrassing. It wasn't a, a Santa Monica fifth, fifth floor office with huge windows overlooking the sea. It was an office with no windows in it, with cassettes all over the room, cigarettes, God knows what, cause it was just embarrassing. And uh, I sat down with him and said, there's no way, there's, look at the date sheet, there are no way. And he looks at the date sheets and he says, well, you've got a week there. I said, yeah, but a week. I said, no, there's no way. All right, we'll give you $25,000 for the, no. Well, we'll give you $45,000 for the two, two, for the four, two days, shoot. And the film was with Connie Francis, and um, it's where the boys meet the girls. It was completely controlled by the Gershwin estate, as far as the music was concerned. I think Liberace was in. I don't, there were some very, there were sort of poppy names of the time were in this film. And he says, is there nothing I could do to entice you and to do it? I said, all right, a Cadillac. You got it. Before I'd finished the sentence, I got it. So I ended up with this huge Cadillac. The boys went over, and then they had to do two songs. Well, the first song was where the boys meet, was a Gershwin number, I'm Biding My Time, which they did. And the second number, I think, that was offered to them was a, 
I think it was a Liberace song or something. It was absolutely appalling, apparently. And the boy, I, and the boys, that's how they refused it. Can't we do one of ours? And they happened to have Listen People, which is a Graham Gulman song, which I was involved with at the time. So they, they put that on and that became a huge hit in America. I think that might have been our second hit. And then Mickey did Can't You Hear My Heartbeat, which was a hit in England for a, a band called, a girl band called Goldie, I think who was managed by Mike Jeffries, who managed the animals. Everything is interconnected. Everything is, and no doubt the publishing was with Alan Klein or God knows what. There's always some, something weird was going on in the background. But I, I was very, um, I'm, tr I'm trying to say, I accepted the fact that everything was not correct. My aim was to get the band to be the biggest band in the world. And if the attorney was shaving off 5% or this, that, and the other. It didn't really concern me as long as I got to where I wanted to get. So everybody said, what are you using him for? He, why use Alan Klein? What are you crazy, you know? And But I used Alan Klein knowing that it might not all be good, but I was using him as much as he was using me. Tell me more about Alan Klein. Horror story. I went to his office. Um, he's a small man, small man complex. Um very self-opinionated and uh, he has his office his desk is elevated by about four feet so anybody sitting down is looking at him is looking at god or the buddha or whatever and he actually got out of the desk and walked around behind me and if i tell you he had the worst breath i have ever known anybody in the world i mean it was horrendous to such an extent that i got out a piece of chewing gum and i said do you want a piece of chewing gum and his reply was I know I've got bad breath. It's totally intentional. And at that stage, I know I was talking to a monster. And, you know, he was. And he, he was unbelievable. I mean, he was ruthless. I didn't like him particularly because I had to be careful that he wouldn't um, take Herman's Hermits away or start causing trouble as he did with every band. He got involved with it was never a smooth ride there's always a problem whether it would be the beatles the rolling stones there was always trouble and eventually they all booted him out eventually so you know on the other hand he was an accountant in a record company he'd seen how the record companies have been exploiting all the artists and he'd used it and rather cleverly but um when i discuss the breath thing with you it shows to what extent he would go to get what he wanted. I don't like it particularly. Okay. What was your management style? I know some English managers where they are dictatorial relative to the acts. What I'm asking is to what degree were you involved in decisions and did the band listen to you and accept what you had to say? Absolutely. The band were fantastic. They did everything that was wanted of them. I did everything. I employed agents, played managers, publicity agents. Uh, when Peter went to America, I had to go to Bow Street Magistrates Court to uh, be their guardian in America in loco parentis, while John Lennon was feeding uh, the young Peter Noon uh, switching rum and cokes for Coca-Colas in nightclubs in London. <laughs> so that was my job in America. I had to look after and be very careful. And we had a lot of... Um, I, I, I liked every one of that. They were all from very nice backgrounds. 
the band. They were nice. They're all from nice people. And in fact, when they had the success, I arranged for all the parents and them to go to Hawaii for, for a two-week holiday. We had a fantastic trip to celebrate all our success. So I always involved the parents. I knew the parents. They were, they were nice. Peter was a great boy. He was a, I mean, they were all were. I mean, they were just nice people. I don't have had a problem with them. We were all in love with each other in the business, and we, we, were, we were very young and so much success, and, you know, more success maybe than we deserved, but we got it, and we were there. We were number one in America, beat the Beatles in 1965, four weeks at number one, keeping help off the chart. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous when you think of it. I mean, Mrs. Brown was done in a flash, one take in a studio and voices and everything mixed together. It wasn't even separated. It was a throwaway track on the end of the album, which Mickey was adamant not to go out as a single. And the story there was MGM said they would prepay on 600,000 records if he allowed them to put it out as a single. They said, no. 800,000, no. A million, okay, if you pay me on a million, you can put it out. Now, the DJs in the meanwhile have been playing the back of this thing. I mean, it was everywhere we went. We were doing Dick Clark Caravan of Tours, stars. And everywhere we went, the DJs were playing this track on and on and on. So it entered the billboard at number 12, which was the highest entry at that stage of any act as a single at that stage. And it went from 12 to 3 to 1, stayed at 1 for four weeks. And I was... I was in a situation where I didn't think I could go wrong. I had Graham Goldman, who we all talk about, no doubt, but, you know, was having hit after hit. Peter was having hit after hit. Mickey Mose was having hit after hit. I mean, we're, and money didn't mean anything. Do you know, I wasn't being careful. Or any, I just thought, well, whatever. And I was playing roulette, winning at roulette. Everything that could possibly go right, as far as money was concerned, seemed to happen all at once during that time. Um, yeah. So what can I say? This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, usually at some point, the band wakes up and says, where's my money? And especially because Herman's Hermits didn't write the songs and royalty rates were low, most of the money was from road work and it was split multiple ways. Never happened. Never happened. We got a million dollar deal with um, MGM, three film deal for a million dollars, which in those days was (laughs) fortune. And we signed that and they were secure for life. They had everything they needed. They never bitched about money. And what was your deal with the band? 25% out of which 10 used to go to the agency. So I had 15, which I split with Charlie originally, and he left after three years and I carried on at that, at that rate. Because in the meantime, I'd bought into the agency So we had it all together, always on a 25% rate. They never seemed to bother about it, never queried it or anything. But I think when you think where they came from, I mean, I suppose you could say the same about all acts, but where they came from and where they got, it would be very difficult for them to say the money wasn't worth it. You know, I mean, I did do a, well, I don't want to praise myself, but it was a spectacular success story. Okay. so. Did you always travel with the band and you no. were wep- No. When did you travel? When did you not travel? I traveled to certain. Uh, I had a partner, Charlie, that traveled with the band a lot. We split it together a bit. Um, I then am um, somebody that was working in the accountancy firm who looked like David Niven uh, with a white handkerchief and suit called John Wright. He was the head of the fan club. And I used to get him to go to various places, Eastern Europe or Germany, Singapore. I couldn't be, I couldn't do everything all at the same time because I was starting to get involved with other acts as well. But my main act, obviously, was Herman Sermons. Now, I went to them, obviously, when they were doing the film, I went filming. And I went on a lot of the American dates, any date that was important, LA or something like that, or New York, I would be there. And I lived in New America for a while. Yeah, that's right. I led for about six months in America. Uh, in that 65 period. So I was around because a lot of our stuff was in America. How did you prevent the act getting stolen from you? Well, you had to have somebody there all the time. And if, if Alan Klein is Mickey Most, well, you don't have to worry about anybody else. <laughs> That's number one. Because if anybody was going to get him, it was going to be Alan Klein. I mean, nobody else would get a smell in there. And I had a very, very, very tough very tough attorney called Stephen Wise, who was Led Zeppelin's attorney, who they had a falling out with eventually in legal case and God knows what. But Steve was a very bright operator. And between us, we protected our interest. How did you find Steve Weiss? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Steve Weiss incidentally went out with Marilyn Monroe one night. That was his claim to fame. Um, He was very good looking. Uh, How did I find him? How did I get to him? God knows. Um, 
Well, I don't think it was from Frank Barcelona, who was our agent. I don't, because I don't think Frank liked him very much. I don't, I'm sorry, I, I really, I'll have to. Uh, okay, okay, it's a long time ago. This was the beginning of Frank Barcelona and Premier Talent. How'd you hook up with Frank? Well, Frank was friendly with my partner, Danny Batesh, who, um, the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars came through that, I think. You know, Dick Clark. It's, I'm, I'm very vague, and my memory is very vague on these subjects. I really... Okay, so let me go one step further. You know, Frank Barcelona ended up becoming legendary. Was he impressive in your day? Was he good, or what were his skills? He was very good. He was good at packaging things. He he took an act on like the Who, and he decided, right, we're gonna we're gonna open for Herman's Hermits. Totally incorrect musically. He didn't care. He just wanted to get them seen, and once they're seen. They're going to make an impact, and it's down to them. And it was totally brilliant. And he put them with the Rolling Stones on certain nights. We played dates, Herman and the Rolling Stones. And um, trying to think, everybody that went on a tour, he packaged. He was a great packager. He, he, he got an act, put them on the show, and then the next time they went out themselves and so forth. And he was a very nice guy. He was very likable. Nice wife, June Harris, who was a, uh, also in the business at the time, PR, whatever. And they were a good couple, and they, they were nice people. He had a partner called Dick Freeberg, who, you know, there was... So, were you a good manager, or were you just bumping into things when you were managing Herman's Hermits? Um, no, I think I was quite creative. I, I think I was, I was very involved in a lot of the music, selection of music. Even though a lot of the stuff was rejected, I did try and get Bus Stop, which I had before anybody else to them, which was rejected by Mickey Most. And other songs, was, well, Listen People, he did. But Listen People wasn't Mickey's choice. That just happened and became a hit. So I, I don't think Mickey initially recognised the brilliance of uh, Graham Goldman, But there's nothing like success. And then eventually he did No Milk Today. And uh, even No Milk Today, he didn't put out as a single A-side in America because there's a kind of hush was the A-side, which was crazy. And um, East West was another huge hit. Um, you know, I think, no, I think I was pretty good. I always employed the best people. I employed a PR, it was Les Perrin. He represented Frank Sinatra, and then he's represented the Rolling Stones. You know, a few small acts. So I'm going to him. Peter Noon, you know, right, or best photographer. Who's the best photographer? Go to him. Always to the best. I was never, never frightened of, you know, I was never frightened of attempting something big. Always, always. And, and even the film, we, we did the film because the guy was reputed to have had done some films with Elvis Presley. And uh, so he had a, a pedigree of some sort that he wasn't just somebody off the street that's putting together uh, a movie, but he was because it was a chick flick and it was rubbish, but that's beside the point. Um, I didn't know that at the time. So I think, I think all round, I think I was, I was pretty solid, you know. I didn't do anything illegal. I was straight. Uh, if somebody did something, I didn't need to have a contract. You know, I, I was as good as my word.
So you didn't have a contract with uh, Herman's Hermits? I did initially. Yeah, I always had one. We always had it on November the 5th. It's the day of his birthday, the day he got married to his wife. A year later, I got married to my wife on November the 5th. My wife's mother was November the 5th. <laughs> Guy Fawkes blew up the Houses of Parliament or tried to. <laughs> that was the day, yes. Yeah, so we had a three-year contract. We then had a five-year contract. And then I think we parted the last term and, and another three-year contract. Yeah, we always had a contract with Peter, yeah. Uh, I did. And Peter, I speak to, to today, you know, I spoke to him yesterday. I mean, he's he's a very nice person. He's improved in his performance. He's, he's wonderful. He's a great storyteller. Uh, you know, he can, he's got the gift of the blind as well. Absolutely. You mentioned Elvis. So you interacted with the Colonel and Elvis. Tell me about that. We got off a massive tour in America, but I don't know. It was more than America. It was a world tour. Anyhow, we ended up, well, let's go to Hawaii. Let's have a couple of days there. So we went to Hawaii, and I get to the hotel there, and they take one look at Herman's Hermits, and the manager, who is German, says, I'm very sorry, we don't have the rooms for you. I said, what do you mean you don't have the rooms? We've got reservations in Hawaii. If the people don't leave the rooms, they can't be pushed out. This is the law of Hawaii. Um, and I'm stood there. So I said to the group, Put all your equipment on the front of the Kahala Hilton. It's a beautiful entrance. So from 30 feet, there was little masses of equipment and cases, 10 people with all the cases, right across, so nobody could get in. And I phoned up Tom Moffat, the DJ, and I said, can we, what are we going to do? We can't get in, there are no rooms. Oh, come and stay with me. I said, there are, he said I've got 19 rooms. I live in a, a mission house. Don't worry about it. So we stayed with him. He used to put every show on, and he put Elvis on. So he'd obviously told the colonel, why don't you ask Harvey to come and meet Elvis? And uh, I got I got in the room, and there was a, you know, and for some reason there was a notice that Elvis and the colonel would like to meet you and the hermits. Well, okay, so I wasn't going to say no. Um, great. Uh, there were photographs taken of that event, and for some reason... Keith Hotwood wasn't on the photograph, and neither was Carl Green. And I could never understand why, why, why weren't they there? And I spoke to Keith about three weeks ago, and he said, they kept changing this date for us to go out there. And I was so fed up of being away from home, I decided to go home, because I never thought it was going to happen. Anyhow, it did happen. We went to the, the, um, went to the Polynesian village, where there's a beautiful hut, a bit like the Catch Bullet Four, you know, it's a foreigner suite, Cat Stevens thing, all those huts, you know, lovely hut. And there was Elvis. Uh, he has uh, white trousers on, bare down to the, no, nothing underneath, no shoes, nothing. And um, the colonel comes in and he said, Ah, oh, a fat Brian Epstein. I thought, great. I need this like a hole in that. It was true. I was fat. <laughs> Compared to everybody else. Anyhow, we had a chat with Elvis. If Elvis stood up, six henchmen dressed exactly the same, with the same hairstyle, same brewer cream, everything all stood up together. Everything was, it was the king. So everybody had to do what the king did. He farted. They're all going to fart. You know, there's no, that's what you do. And he, and Peter Noon was brilliant. Brilliant. The first question, he said, how come you made it without long hair? 
<laughs> which is and, and so I said, well, maybe my sideburns helped. You know what I mean? It was a great, it was a great conversation. It was, a, and we got on really well. I'm not convinced how well Elvis even knew about Herman's service. I don't know. All I know is it was a, it was a meeting that we milked to hell. And when I got back to England, I was doing TV. Somebody that's actually met Elvis because nobody had met met Elvis. He'd never been to England. He never went to England. And what about the colonel? You talk in the book about a few conversations with the colonel. Oh, uh, the colonel is unbelievable. Great. And he is responsible. He's much maligned. Uh, he's responsible for merchandising as we know it. Um, there was a, <laughs> there was some, he told me, I think there was some gig in Carolina where there, I don't know, there are 50,000 people and the forecast was for tremendous torrential rain. And the colonel had spent all night trying to find out where he could buy umbrellas. I mean, this was the, the head of the man was incredible. There was a film that Elvis Presley was in. And when they'd finished, the colonel had said to the heads of MGM, by the way, did you get permission to use that watch that Elvis was wearing? And they looked, no. Well, either you take it out of every scene or you give me a quarter of a million dollars. Quarter of a million dollars, thank you very much. I mean, he was, he was, a, he was, um, he was a showman. He was from circus background. He told me why well, I used to get, I didn't care about opening acts. I didn't package. I used to get a magician, a conjurer with three mice, and they went on for 45 minutes and the crowd were going mad. And then our boy went on Elvis. <laughs> that was it. The crowd went, I mean, it was, it was the total opposite to what I was doing when I was trying to think, what's a good act to get the public in? His idea was to bore the people to sick until Elvis came on and then he was away. And um, what else? Yeah. So when I got to Las Vegas, my final story about him, which is my favorite, it was my son Paul's 21st birthday. And we were in LA and I said to Paul, what, where, what would you like to do for your birthday? He said, I'd like to go to Las Vegas. And we were shocked because nobody... It just wasn't the right place. Anyhow, we went. And I said, well, I know the colonel lives here. I'll phone him up to see whether we can see him. So I phoned up the colonel. And um, he says, Harvey, I'm sorry. I'm just going to the dentist at the moment. I would have loved for you to come, but unfortunately, I've got this. But if I get finished earlier, I'll call you. So anyhow, um, I thought, yes, we're not going to hear from him. Two hours later, the phone goes, hi, Harvey. I'm back from the... Um, I'm back. I'm back. Do you want to bring the boys around so I can meet them? So now I'm panicking. Every time I met him, we'd all been in limos. I mean, when he went in a limo with Elvis, there was a Cadillac in front, three behind. It was like a, a processional. So anyhow, I thought, right, I've got to get a limo. I'm going to his house. I phoned up this agency and I said, look, I don't want any stretch wheelbase. I don't want anything flash. I just want an ordinary town car, please, and a driver. They send this car around. It's a grey a grey town car. It has bullet holes all the way through the side of the doors, all through the back. And then he drives us up to the house. I said, you can't go, go park, we'll walk up to the house. <laughs> so we couldn't show this limo. It was so in such bad condition. That's my story. And he, we came in there and he took the boys into a room which was filled with photographs of Elvis with every dignitary, every member royalty of the world to, you know, Tutu, the king, or whatever. You know, every, it was just amazing. 
and he spent a lot of time with the boys. He really liked them. Philip and Paul are my two boys, and he was very kind. And um, he invited me to his 90th, I think, or 85th birthday party, when I, I couldn't get to the last one. But um, I always liked him, and I hated the interpretation of Tom Hanks in the film Elvis. I mean, he never had a voice like that at all. He had a kind of a sudden draw or a put-on sudden draw. It was nothing like that thing. And apparently somebody told me that the reason Hanks did that voice was because they wanted to make, out, make him distinctive as being kind of European. And I don't know, whatever it was, but it was very unfair. It was, it was a bad portrayal, I thought. I mean, really rough. And all I can say to everybody, they say, well, he had 50%. What do you think of that? I said, well, do you think Elvis Presley would have had any success without the Colonel? Because I don't think he would. He would have chosen as another country singer, maybe. So how did it end with Hermits, Hermits? Well, Peter decided he wanted to go on his own. He was a natural showman. He wanted to become like a Tommy Steele. He was always the focal point of the band. They were doing then cabaret work because the, uh, the hit side of it had turned... It's not sour, it was quiet. And he wanted to be more more himself and be an entertainer, like Michael Crawford, Tommy Steele, you know, that sort of thing. And he could go on at the Palladium and do his own thing. And Mickey got him a song, uh, which was a David Bowie song, Oh You Pretty Thing. And um, he had a huge... So the band split on November the 5th, right? The hermits went their own way. And... Um, it was reasonably amicable because things weren't that great at that stage. We had no success in America at all. That had sort of dried up completely. But Oh You Pretty Things became a hit in England. And when it came to doing it on top of the pops, David Bowie himself played on the set because of musicians' union regulations that people that played on the record either had to be on it or had to I know something to do with unions and he came all dressed in as David Bowie dressed totally out of it and there was Peter both on the same thing that was, and I met David Bowie he was very charming very nice person very really nice I found him very nice anyway. you you can only find people where they find them I mean I've even found people that like Alan Klein so you know it's, it's how you find somebody you know, and how you deal with them it's because you find them to be abhorrent or whatever. It doesn't mean to say they are. And my other favorite manager was Peter Grant, of course. Well, okay, you bring him up. Tell us a little bit about Peter Grant. Well, I was in America and Queen were looking for management. So I said to Peter, you manage Led Zeppelin. I manage Herman Sermits and now 10CC. How can we not get a management contract if we joined forces? And we went to meet them. Uh, meanwhile, I'd been sending... Tickets to uh, Roger Taylor for Wimbledon. He loved tennis. I used to send him tickets, always getting And uh, John Paul, um, now I'm getting mixed up. No, not John Paul Jones, of course not. I, I'd seen Freddie a few times. Um, early in, when he was 15, I saw him at Kensington Market, full makeup, nails polished and everything. With, and I said to somebody, who's that? Oh, it's Freddie. And he was exactly the same as he was 10, seven years later. Freddie was Freddie even then. So going back to it, they the, had a meeting. Jim Beach was the person that was the accountant, and he was holding the meeting. The four members, myself and Peter. 
and they rejected us. So I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, and also Peter was just about to form his label, Swan Song, and I think he wanted them to be on that label. And I'm not sure whether the reason they turned us down was maybe because they didn't want to go on Swan Song anyhow, which I, I wouldn't have minded or, or I don't think it would have been the ideal for them. I think we could have done better than doing that. But, you know, um, so Peter and I got really friendly and... Um, they employed uh, John Reed as the manager, Queen, and then they slung him out after two years. And then Jim Beach became the manager. And to this day, he still manages them. He's in Switzerland. I don't know, he's in his, obviously in his 80s, but and he's ever since that day. He, and I met Roger Taylor, coincidentally, at what was meant to be Paul McCartney's last concert ever, about 10 years ago, which was an extra date put on at the end of the last tour in inverted commas, at Liverpool at the Albert Dock. And I'm sitting next to Roger Taylor, and he turned around and he says, have you got any Wimbledon tickets? <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing how people remember things. I mean, it was, I was, just, it was just great. And I, I really like Queen, by the way. I, I didn't when I was young, because when I had 10cc, they were like, I would say to my son, what are you playing that rubbish for? Because he was playing Queen, Killer Queen, back to Florence all the time. Oh, it's rubbish. Da, 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 da. But afterwards, I began to love them. And we've actually promoted them as well a few times in England. But uh, Freddie Mercury was probably my favourite showman of the last century. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, but Peter Grant 
certainly previously been a wrestler. He was a big guy, 300 pounds. <laughs> He's a pussy was, guy. <laughs> was he winning on intimidation or was he really that sharp? Wow. That's a loaded question. They said you'd ask questions like this. Well, first of all, he had he worked in the same office as Mickey Most. So I knew him very well. His first hit was Winchester Cathedral, um, the New Vaudeville Band, and he had that. And he was the uh, road manager for Gene Vincent, and he told me some great stories about Gene Vincent. He was very sweet. <laughs> He's, he had this exterior that was like a gorilla. But at the time, and I just, and I had all the stories about him, people hanging from the windows and God knows what to get money. But I, I never came across that. I came across the other side of him. He came to our house for dinner. My wife, Carol, was the most wonderful, wonderful gourmet chef. And she did a side of beef, about <laughs> 15 pounds. He came in, he sat down on a chair broke the chair, and then we put him back up again, and he ate the whole side of beef himself. And he says, I've got tickets for you to go to the Free Trade Hall to see Led Zeppelin. And I said, okay. He says, have you got any cotton wool in the house? I said, what? Cotton wool? So why? He says, well, you I'll give you an impression. Your tickets, Harvey, there are four rows in front of the bass speaker, and I don't think you were going to like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, and then we went, we've met many occasions, and my, my favourite story, which is in the book, I, lo I love this one, we're in LA, we're both at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and uh, we decide we're going to go out for dinner, and he liked steak, so I said, well, there's a restaurant called Lowry's, which is the best steak there is, and my parents were staying there, I was with my parents, Let's all go together. So I went with my parents and he was following on. And I get to the door of the restaurant and a very stuffy maitre d' answer the door. And he says, oh, you can't come in without a jacket. And of course, with my arrogance, I said, well, you get me one. You know, and that was me. It was horrible, but that was me. You get me one. And he comes back with his seersucker jacket and I put it on. And I said, by the way, he says, yes. I said, our next, the last person in the party to arrive you might not be able to accommodate him with a jacket. We can fit anybody. Don't you worry about it. We've got it all covered. Peter Graham walks through the door and he says, I pass. <laughs> yeah, that's Peter. Totally hilarious. Okay, so how do you meet Graham Goldman? Graham Goldman, Lol Cream, Kevin Godley, and myself all lived in the North Manchester Jewish ghetto uh, within one and a half miles of each other. So that's, everybody knew everybody virtually in that community. Um, so, and Graham was in a band called The Whirlwinds, which was an exceptionally good kind of show band type of thing that played very unusual stuff. They played uh, all the Italian songs of, which were in, inundating England, Marino Marini, Quando, 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 all those type of songs, played them very nicely and finished off with Alexander's ragtime band with all the hands going, you know, at the end. And Graham was a phenomenal guitarist. And I went to see them at the Jewish Lads Brigade. It was a month, I think it was a Monday night. They used to rehearse. Wait, wait, stop. Them, so. What exactly was the Jewish Lads Brigade? It was like a place, like the YMCA, 
where people would go who are Jewish to uh, looked after like a youth centre where there were camps and football arranged and all sorts of things for Jewish people to the kids to go to, to like so, and they would practice there because there was a hole there it was a good place for them to practice their equipment and I went there and I don't know why I went there and I've been trying to find out why I went there it was I was an accountant I had nothing to do with the music business other than that I love music and I asked Phil Cohen who was one of the lead singers of the band about two weeks ago I said why was I there and he said, well, none of us knew why you were there. And none of us knew you except me, because I played football with you. So I was the only person, and I don't know why you were there. So anyhow, but I was there. And obviously, and uh, I got trying to, I, I don't know what it was. I, the manager they had there was a guy called Victor Koss. And uh, he was very, very arrogant. This band was very popular. They had a date sheet that was filled. You know, they played upmarket places they weren't playing rock and roll places they were playing you know maybe maybe weddings maybe um you know a tennis club dances or whatever they were they were very 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 they were well paid and i i i probably wanted to be involved with them somehow but i i can't put it together why except that i love graham and this guy the victor Carl, he was just in his own planet he was just horrendous and i asked phil about him as well i said well what was he like as a manager am i being unfair saying he wasn't a good manager he said he wasn't until we signed the contract <laughs> and i don't know what that means meanwhile i loved graham anyhow graham was just amazing guitarist and live really near to me. I mean, nearer than the others. And um, I got talking to him, and I, I, I waited then till Herman's Hermits had had some success. And I approached him again. I said, well, you know, would you like to join me? I'll see what I can do for you. And uh, maybe you should write some songs yourself, you know, because he, he wasn't writing songs in, the, in that band particularly. I think they had a couple of records, actually, one of them might have been an Everly Brothers. I don't know what. Then they they did a cover version of something, but it didn't do anything. So uh, their band was kind of in a a state of disarray, and people were going into their own careers. And uh, Graham said, "Okay, well, let's try it." And I met his father, who is a very nice man called Jaime, who is a frustrated playwright, absolute genius, beautiful with lyrics. A very, very close, and his mother was a lovely lady, Betty, and they were a lovely couple, and they, she was very into theatre. So both of them were very theatrical, and it was a nice thing, and I, I, and I got to know them, and I said, look, would, would, could I look after him? And I gave him a few quid a week as a retainer to, you know, keep just good faith. And I did that with Kevin Lol. I did that with, they did a mural for me. I just kept everybody in work because money was flowing through me. Like, like I said to you, it was a joke. You know, I couldn't give it away quick enough. Rice Weber as well, we talk about, I put them on a deal. I mean, everybody <laughs> that came. And Graham, Graham was very close. He was like a brother. And um, we started writing together and then, I was involved in the writing. We used to go nine till five every day to his little flat. And we used to just plod along, playing things, taking things out. I was acting like more as an editor. He'd play something. I said, well, that's great. Play that. Why do you change that? And we had this 
well, it wasn't a brainwave. House of the Rising Sun was so big. I mean, it was just everybody that had a guitar was playing it. I said, why do you write a song on those four chords? And he said, and surreptitiously, he changed the last chord minimally and then wrote For Your Love. And then in the middle, I said, well, we need something different in the middle. Can you do anything? And he broke it into the rock and roll part of it. And then he finished it. And I heard it and I thought, number one, there is no question. I was absolutely convinced. Going to take that to the Beatles. They can do it. I had very, like I said, I don't think small. And Graham looked at me as I'm mad. Yeah, right. The Beatles, you know, they're not going to, and he hadn't had any success at all, really. So, you know, but um, anyhow, I decided we'd go and see the Beatles and get it to them. So we went to see the Beatles at Hammersmith, Odin, and the opening act with the Yardbirds. And behind me was a publisher called Ronnie Beck, who was a publisher. I said, look, Ronnie, can you do me a favour? I've got this demo. Can you go and play it to the Beatles? I think they, I think it's the number one, and I'd, I'd like to know. And um, he's, and he looked at me sheepishly as I'm mad. And after the interval, he comes back. Do you mind very much if I play it to the Yardbirds? I said, who are the, the Yardbirds? are opening up. No, I want it to go to the Beatles. Who are the Yardbirds? The Yardbirds don't mean shit. Come on. Um, anyhow... He said, well, the manager would like to meet you. And now between Giorgio Gomolsky and him, they managed to talk me into allowing them to do it. Eric Clapton blew a fit. He wanted the Yardbirds to be a blues-orientated band, as most of them were, like Lon John Baldry the Hoochie Coochie Man, Rod Stewart and the Steam Packet. They all played American rhythm and blues, and that was it. And they were mad on the blues. And Eric Clapton didn't want to know about bloody Graham Gooman or Pop or anything. It wasn't where he wanted to go. And he subsequently left the band. They got a few small people in, though, didn't they? Jeff Beck and a few other miners came into the band. But that, so For Your Love went out. Uh, Giorgio talked me into it. He used, I think, Brian Auger, they used some very, he did some very nice things, the harpsichord on it was very clever. And it was a very, again, it was, um, it had atmosphere. You know, certain records like I'm Not In Love, Bohemian Rhapsody, MacArthur Park, they've got atmosphere. And that For Your Love, at the time, for what it was, it had that atmosphere, something slightly weird. And, it, and the lyrics, of course, weren't done by Graham. The lyrics were Hymis. A 17-year-old doesn't write, I'd give the moon if it were mine to give. I mean, that in a 16-year-old guy from school in my... No, it's from an artist, from his father. And it was great. It was a great, great lyric. And they, of course, then the thing went to number one. I mean, as I said, everything I had touched turned to gold. I mean, it really did. I, I should have known that things would change but you know, it was certainly a it was certainly a golden era for me so after for your love how does the songwriting continue with graham i thought of the title to heart full of soul that's my claim to fame so technically i'm a co-writer and technically i wrote half the lyrics because it's repeated about nine times but uh, other than that yeah so uh i got involved kevin lowell then was the next thing we did and Kevin Noll brought me beautiful songs Graham and I we were going to publish them and we we did it we decided we joined a company together myself and Graham called Our New Music and uh, I think we also put some of Graham's songs in it as well I think maybe even No Milk Today went in it um, 
And we just did that 50-50 myself with Graham. So it was like, it was done with Campbell Connelly. They had 50% and we had 50%. I was fed up about For Your Love's royalties. Graham was getting 50% and then it was 50% for overseas publishing, which was just, so that was the end as far as I was concerned. And we adjusted the heart full of soul deal because we didn't have time to really, and afterwards we said, right, we'll get our own publishing company. We're not going through all this nonsense again. And that was it. And we formed Mankem, well, I formed Mankem Music in America. And, um, that was in 65 or something. And uh, yeah, so that that's what goaded me to do my own publishing company. Okay, so when you put Graham's new songs in that publishing company, how was the split? And it was just the two of you? Yeah, we split, we split the publishing share with, um, with Campbell Canelli. And then Graham got the writer's share. Okay, so you split 25 and he got 50. He got, yeah, and the he other got 75. Got, uh, okay. Who owns that stuff today? Campbell Canelli bought it back and it's bought by Wise Music now. It's gone down the chain. You know, Campbell Canelli was sold, this was sold and acquired and so forth. Well, I guess what I'm saying, have you sold your share in his You Graham know, I sold, sold my share and Graham's share a long time ago, which is a mistake, obviously. We sold it in about 1967. I think we got two and a half thousand pound each for it. And does he still have his writer's share? No. No, I sold that too. The writer's share, I acquired the writer's share when they sold, they sold all their rights virtually in 1993 or six or something. They sold uh, to EMI, St. Anne's was sold to EMI firstly, and then every member of 10CC, other than Lol, uh, sold their rights because of various financial implications they had at the time. They needed money and they couldn't acquire it or whatever. And they sold for a considerable amount of money. And I acquired the American rights because I asked Graham, Eric, and Kevin, I think, at the time, you know, I said, look, if you're going to sell to EMI for the world, why do you let me buy the rights? I'll give you better deals, which I did. And, um, you know, let me look after it. They're my babies as well. So I still publish the, uh, the songs, even to today, of um, subject to reversions, obviously, uh, of 10CC in America. And in America, we have the right of reversion. Yeah, that will all work when it works. Yeah. When it works, good point. No, so when I say these, when it works, I'm talking about on the time period of the of the thing. Right. So, do they have any of their rights back? They will have. Okay, let's get back to the narrative. So, you're working with Graham. You're having this incredible success. How do you get the songs to the Hollies? Um, I didn't. I think Graham got them through it one way or another because of Graham Nash. Although the Hollies were managed by a fellow called Michael Cohen, who's my wife's first cousin. Um, I was quite close with him, but I think Graham got them to Graham, Graham got them to Graham Nash somehow. I got the song and I tried to get it for Herman's Hermits and I went to Mickey Most who just rejected it. And I was very upset because I thought it was a super song. I was in Israel 
And when I got back, Graham said, I've written a new song. I said, okay. And I come round to the house. He came round to my house and we had this horrendous Epstein furniture, which was like so big, you could, it filled the whole room. And he sat in this huge armchair with one foot laps on both sides with this thick material. And Graham gets on and starts playing bus stop. He plays it right through with the riff, everything. And I just sat back, I thought, oh my. That is incredible. It's possibly his best song, you know. It, it was just, it was amazing. It had the feel of the time. The lyric was charming. The song was incredible. How could Mickey Mouse turn it down? Well, in one word, no. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and in the meantime, I think Graham had got it to the Hollies. The Hollies had done an initial song of Graham had written a song with Charlie called Look Through Any Window. So that's probably how they got it, because that had a success as well. That was a top 20 in England. So that's probably how that happened. So how does Graham as an individual songwriter morph into 10CC, Strawberry Studios, Eric Stewart and everybody? Um, he starts off with Eric Stewart. I mean, we, I bought, as I say, into the agency, Kennedy Street Agency. I bought the partners out of that. They had Freddie and the Dreamers and Wayne Fontana. And between us, we had one, two, and three in Billboard one week with Wayne Fontana, um, Freddie, and Herman, one, two, and three. So that was all right from Manchester, which was our aim always to stay in Manchester. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think. And then, uh, yeah, that's right. Then Wayne Fontana had the, big, the game of love. I think then the mind, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders split up. Mindbenders had hit called Groovy Kind of Love, which went to number one worldwide. I think was, was it Goffin King? Might have been, I don't know who it was. It was, it was a very big writer's anyhow. It was a great song. And um, then Graham joined with Eric in the Mindbenders. I don't know why, but that happened. So that's their first thing together. I'd met Wayne Fontana and Eric in America on tour when I was touring Herman. I met him for the first time. Very good looking, very charming, nice, very nice, very nice person. And um, at the time, um, so they got together. Then, they, then we always had this dilemma of having to go to London to record, which was a pain in the ass. So they decided they wanted to start a recording studio in Manchester. We invested in the studio, Kennedy Street, our company. Rick Dixon, who was managing Eric at the time, also was employed by Kennedy Street. He was supervised a lot of the work in the studio, and they developed um, Strawberry Studio. Once that studio was going, Graham, in the meantime, had been writing and he was doing songs. He went to America to write for Kaznet's Cats on some kind of a deal, and... Uh, then he used to do demos of the songs and put them out in England to try and have success with various tracks that they all wrote together. Really good stuff. Um, songs that nobody's ever heard, but they were really good. They were utilising the studio to get it going. Then when it really happened was when they were testing drum equipment or something, and Kevlol and Eric came up with Neanderthal Man which was a huge hit in England, this song, obscure song. 
And when Graham joined that, that, that band to play with Moody Blues on some tour, and then the four of them used to do session work all the time for anybody that came. So we had an artist called Ramesses, and they did a whole album with Ramesses. And then through my meeting Tony Christie and being my real second act, probably after Herman Sermitz or, no, after Graham, Tony Christie was the next person on the scene. And he had a, he had a very good voice, he liked Tom Jones. I was in America at the Brill Building with Donny Kirshner, who I was quite friendly with, I liked a lot. And I said, whatever happened to Neil Sadaka, one of my teenage loves? And he said, oh, he's upstairs. He said, you're kidding. I said, can I hear it? I'm with my wife, Carol. Let's go and see him. So we went up to this little room, 10 feet by six, with a big upright piano. And Donnie says, Neil, playing some of your new stuff. They played five tracks. The last one was, is this the way to Amarillo? And I said, that's it. That's a smash. I like that. And Donnie looked at him. Uh, it's Neil, and Neil looked at Donnie, and they said, "This guy is crazy." <laughs> they didn't. They just looked at it. They didn't. They didn't like the song. Anyhow, I get back to England, and now Carol's driving me mad. Have you got a demo for that song? Get the demo. And I'm phoning Donnie Kirshner. It was like with Mickey Most. It's like getting things out of people was so hard. You had to have my kind of persistence or ignorance or whatever you call it, or what. There's a better word than that. Chutzpah to really drive people mad. So, and finally he sent me a demo of Amarillo. I went to London, it was recorded the next day. It was put in the charts two weeks later, it got to 18, which I thought was crap. I thought it was much better than that. Anyhow, 25 years later, Peter Kerr, comedian, did a thing for BBC, which is a Red Nose Day, which is to do with charity. And they did a new video, and, and they used it, Is This the Way to Amarillo? It became the biggest record of 2004 and was number one for 12 weeks in the UK charts. That's the history of that. But going back to why I started. So when, even when he got to 18, Danny Kirshner was ecstatic. He says, God, I thought I had good ears. That's amazing, Harvey. And I said, well, why don't you send Neil over to England and let's let the boys do a bit of recording with him, you know, because they're very good. And they had had a hit with, I think, that, yeah, they might have had a hit with Neanderthal Man by then. They were having success. And Graham had had a pedigree. You know, Graham just had hit after hit. It was a joke. So uh, anyhow, and also I'd become a brother-in-law of Graham. We married uh, sisters. And that was in 1969. So this was 71 Everything was happening at the same time. So Danny said, okay, I'll send him over to do a session. So he came over to do a session and he did two albums. Monster, never stopped recording. We used to go into the studio. He used to sit at the piano to start with. And then he goes, Calendar Girl, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. And everybody's sitting on the floor getting a concert before the, it starts. And I used to bring... Bagels and locks from North Manchester. <laughs> best, best bagels in the world. Best locks from a shop called Titanic, which was named after somebody's grandparents who died in the Titanic or something. And he loved it. And the, and the so-and-so credited me on the album. I was quite instrumental. I was responsible. 
Yeah, Kinsale was responsible for Neil Sedaka having a revival. I mean, you know, okay, Elton John put the record out and Elton John did this and that and the other, but he wouldn't have seen Elton John unless this had happened. The credit was Harvey, didn't even have a full name, Harvey, Bagels and Locks. <laughs> That's the Sedaka story. So then, then he said to the boys, because he'd done beautiful music with them, it was magnificent. He said to them, well, why don't you do something yourself? And I think that goaded them. They'd now done a Ramesses album, which was pretty damn good. They'd done a Sadaka album with tracks which were amazing, like Solitaire. I mean, just incredible. And then, so they started fiddling around themselves. That's the beginning of the 10cc mold together. And then they did um, a song called Waterfall, which I didn't like. They thought it was the greatest thing since Last Bread. And they peddled it everywhere themselves, more or less. And um, Apple said they liked it. You know, Apple, it was the most disorganized organization in the world. They liked it. So you know what happened to that. Jonathan King comes up one day and um, they they done a track called Donna, which was a ripoff of Oh Darling by the Beatles, which was a ripoff of Valence Darling. I mean, the thing, Oh Darling, has been used not, I can't ascribe it to the Beatles. It was goes back to American, whoever did it to start with. So they did this and we thought it was a joke. I mean, Lol had a high-pitched voice and, you know, they all thought Waterfall was great. And Jonathan King said, that's a hit. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, we know it's a hit. So, well, I'll give you, I think he gave him 500 quid, offered some money or something. For it. it was crazy. Okay, right. Okay, we'll do it. And yeah, it got to number two in the charts. And that was the beginning of the Jonathan King thing. We signed a contract with Jonathan King on a very low royalty. I think we were on 4%, I think. And my idea was, okay, we'll sign this. But if they become successful, I'm sure he'll renegotiate. And that will be great for us. We can, we'll, we'll have all the benefits of his enthusiasm we'll have a hit we'll have another hit great and then he won't be happy he wants us to earn money anyhow that was the wrong thing he didn't <laughs> anyhow they had a load of success uh, this is between 72 and 74 tremendous many many hits nothing in america not a smell in america number one in england with uh, rubber bullets the dean and i was a hit art for art's sakes a hit um, Mandy Fly Me classic was a hit and uh, nothing in America at all and the boys said we're on 4% we're on 1% Jonathan is getting more himself than all of us put together it's not right so I speak to Jonathan I said look this isn't right will you change it no the contract's a contract public school is uh, you signed the contract that's the contract and the law in England stipulates you can't force somebody to to do a management contract. In other words, I managed Jimmy White, for instance, a snooker player. He tried to get out of his contract. My only, all I could do is get damages. I can't force him to carry on with me. And that, so we did the reverse with Jonathan King. Said, well, look, they're not going to give you any more product. You, you, they're not going to work for less than you getting more than the whole group put together. I'm sorry. And incidentally, by the way, um, Jonathan said, 
finally was forced into meeting us. And we, we went on the train, myself and my attorney, um, to meet Jonathan King at eight o'clock in the Westbury Hotel. The train broke down in the middle of nowhere. And we were stuck on this train from Manchester to London. We got into the Westbury Hotel at 4.30 and there were no telephones. There was no mobile phone. We were in the middle of nowhere. He was at the hotel. We got there at 4.30, he was still sitting there, waiting. And I couldn't believe that he'd waited all that time. And yeah, we did the deal and we got, um, he got a very good deal. He got a reversion of the rights from, first of all, we got permission to leave and go on to another company. And the other company being Phonogram had done a deal with him to acquire the rights for those albums for that period of time, the rights reverting to him again. We could sell them again and again. And I spoke to Jonathan a few weeks ago, and he said it was the worst decision he ever made. Now, the reason we left was because we had no success in America. The reason we had no success in America, because we were on a crappy label. London Records was bar none the worst label I've ever been associated with. Not that we went to a much better one in Mercury, but London was, <laughs> London was particularly bad. I mean, we went with Mercury because of the money. Uh, and, and phonogram because of their pedigree, Deutsche Grammophone for the rest of the world. That's, that's a different story, but London didn't get us a sniff. And my son Paul said to me, well, maybe it's because the American radio weren't playing that kind of music at the time. It was very formatted American radio and 10cc just didn't fit into that at all. And there is an element of truth in that, but the talent was so great and the publicity was so wonderful, even in America, that one would have thought they'd have had some kind of success with all that magnificent product, but they didn't. So we went to um, Phonogram. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, so you have all those albums. I bought them all. I was a big fan. The album comes out on uh, Phonogram, Mercury, I'm Not In Love. Tell us the story there. I went into the, well, the great thing about being a manager then of 10CC was I didn't have the problem of finding the song. I sat back and they presented me with all this magnificent stuff. And the only thing is to decide which song goes out first or which is the hit. So they presented this album and because the record company and I went into the studio and I heard I'm Not In Love unmixed in the studio and talking about atmosphere that was the bee's knees that was that was definitely the best thing they did from the point of view of atmosphere it was incredible difficulty being it was six minutes and there was a lot of discussion uh, which resulted in them putting minestrone out as the first single in england anyhow i'm not in love just took over the world it was the biggest record and it was even in America, even on Mercury, probably the worst record company in the world. And the other thing why it really didn't happen was the group who were always very meticulous about their sound in concerts did not give a, well, I shouldn't say they didn't give a toss. They didn't pay much attention to the visuality of their show. So they never, they would go in in jeans with a T-shirt like, like Steve Jobs, you know, it wasn't even, they weren't even interested in anything. Whereas mm, Dave Bowie, t- Mark Bolan, Freddie Mercury, uh, you know, you just go on and on of all the stars that did uh, get that additional visual thing. And considering how good Kevin Lowell were on visuality and artistic work, as subsequently they proved with their video stuff, it just wasn't used for them. So when we were off, they were interested in sound, sound, sound. Oh, it drove me mad. I said to them, well, if they want the sound, let them buy the bloody record. I want to go to a concert. I want to hear them sing a sing flat. I don't care if he drops a few notes. I don't care if the string breaks. I want a live performance. I want an interaction with, surely that's the game for a live show. They didn't see it that way. or They weren't prepared to do anything. We were off at the Eagles tour while the record was in the charts. And of course, it was rejected, wasn't it? Because of some bloody sound thing or something. Or I don't even want to go into it. I thought, well, you know, and also I think, I think Frank Barcelona was actually looking after 10cc as well, I think. So it might have come from his packaging ideas, I don't know. But it, they were perfectly suited as well. I mean, when we played with the Rolling Stones, that was not a clever match. It was totally different. But the Eagles and 10CC, that just, that would have been easy. And I think if they'd have done that, they'd have had a number one album. And I think we wouldn't be talking about them in the same way. I mean, they are definitely not first division. You know, they're not Beatles, Queen, Pink Floyd, Prince, Michael Jackson. But I think they could have been if they'd have had a few number one albums in America and the American public had got to know 
the humor and the genius of them. And of course, they didn't stay together again. I mean, I'm talking about I'm not in love with only half the band as well in the end because the others had left or were leaving. Okay, so tell us about the band breaking up in the gizmo, etc. Yeah, well, the band were always a two-sided affair. It was Graham and Eric were the establishment. They could have had bow ties on. And Kevin Lowell were the hippies. <laughs> they, were, they wanted, they didn't care about commerciality. That was not their game. Their game was doing what they want, unrepressed, unedited, unproduced. You know, they did Consequences was three al- a three-album set. You know, it's crazy. And all I said was, give me a single, please give me a single. And they played a track called Honolulu Lulu, which is 17 seconds of a brilliant idea. Aloha, I'm Honolulu Lulu from Hawaii. I saw you from the corner of my eye, which, and it was beautiful music. And I said, that's it. We've got a single, it's gonna be a smash. Anyhow, a few weeks later, I went to hear the rest of their track. They put a, like a 15 minute orchestral piece on top of the 17 seconds. And that was all. That's their commerciality. They weren't they weren't at all interested in commerciality. But um, Kevin Lowell, but Graham and Eric, they think, right, we've got to do an album. We've got to do it by this time. We've got to have the singles. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. And I think, the uh, obviously, they've been together for four years. And there, there was, um, there was, I don't know, not musical differences. There weren't, I don't even think it was personality differences. I just think, you know, they, instead of nowadays, uh, an artist would take off for a year and then go back and do it. In those days, it was like they created a brand. It had a tremendous marketing aspect worldwide, with the exception of America. Um, they could earn everywhere they went. And so Graham and Eric joined together and they did The Things We Do For Love, which was half done before Kevin Lowell left almost. And Kevin just hated it. When they heard it, they they hated it. And it was very much liked in America. And uh, Graham went to see Bette Midler, who was a favourite song at the time. I mean, you know, it was a very popular song. And it actually outsold I'm Not In Love, which I didn't understand. But go figure it. Okay. The band splits apart. You're still looking after Eric and Graham. Do you continue with Kevin and Lal? How long does that last? I did a deal with Kevin and Lal that I carried on publishing their material and they could go on their way because they wanted to be involved in uh, new things, a video work and everything. And I said, fine, that's fine. But so I retained the publishing on everything they did. And they had some hits on their own, which was very good. And it was very nice. And it was always a very friendly relationship. And I, to this day, I, I'm very friendly with Lal. And um, Lowell's the lucky one, really, because he didn't sell any rights, so he didn't have any any beefs or anything. He just <laughs> let the money keep rolling in because he had some kind of a case in America against the previous management where he'd been awarded a nice chunk of money, and I think it just kept him able to retain everything he, he had because everybody else was probably overspending at a tremendous rate and then there's always the tax implications of earnings, which you've not put aside for, which is very typical of lots of people. Although everybody had accountants, the accountants can't control the spending. If you're going to get three Ferraris, what do you want? 
Okay, so they do that album, Deceptive Bends, the two. Then they do Dreadlock Holiday. Uh, That's a hit. And then it peters out. What's going on there? Well, I think there was a lot of... um, Well, Graham and Eric didn't get along then, um, particularly. Um, I'm trying to think of dates now because... What date are we talking? Because 19, the band like disbanded for a while in about 1983 or something like that. I think um, they tried various things. Andrew Gold came in as a kind of a producer and tried all sorts of things. We moved from Mercury to Warner Brothers for what it did. Didn't do any good, but we did move to a decent label. And um, yeah, I think, I don't know, they just grew apart, uh, you know. It was just pretty much impossible. So I think Graham decided to do his own thing. Meanwhile, punk had come in. Their music was not fashionable. They were self-indulgent capitalists, and it wasn't what the Sex Pistols were about. And the Sex Pistols took over the airways. And so, you know. Okay, so then you manage some other singers, but then you manage a snooker player. Where does that come from? Well, I got out at the same time. I decided, right, I want to get into sport now. They're not going to play any music. I want to rest for a while. I've had a nice career. The 60s, the 70s, we've, we've missed out Rice Weber, but anyhow, we, we go on to um, the 70s and uh, the 80s, and I thought, right, can't get any music played. I did ultimately succumb to getting a kind of group that fitted in with the contemporary situation. But before that, I, I had um, uh, Wax came together, Graham and Andrew. And Andrew was a very big favourite of mine. I really think he's a very talented person, could play every instrument and was absolutely tremendous. And Graham and Andrew, I think, together had the best times of their respective lives as far as musical. Music was concerned. So Graham had gone from a situation where it was probably always battling, whether it be on editing Kevin Lull or whatever, or edit or falling out with uh, musically with uh, Anne, with Eric or whatever production. He was now with somebody that he was completely, well, completely in bed with. They just they got on like a house on fire. They were wonderful together. We have some great stories of theirs. I mean, on Andrew's 33rd birthday, we went to Morton's in London. It was a restaurant. And we both loved the producers. Everybody I'd ever been associated with, going back to 20 years, had always had the producers film, and we knew every single word of it. And we're sitting down at the table, myself, Carol, my wife, Andrew and Graham, and Mel Brooks walks in. And he goes and sits down with a fellow called Joe Lustig, who I knew as an agent. So I, in my inimitable manner, I sent a bottle of beautiful red wine over to their table and say, saying it's from Harvey over there. So the waiter takes the thing over to Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks gets hold of the wine he's drinking and says to the waiter, take this pig swill away. <laughs> <laughs> and guess this. But later in the later in the meal, I feel a mass somebody massaging my shoulder. And I thought, what's going on? And I look around, it's Mel Brooks. And I said to him, I said, Would you be embarrassed 
if you repeat a line from the producers and Graham and Andrew will give you the next two lines. And he says, how can I be embarrassed, an old Jew? <laughs> <laughs> then he worked the whole room. <laughs> went from table to table. Yeah, Andrew, we all love the producers and that was great. And it, it's, it's very interesting, the producers, actually. I met Gene Wilder on... Uh, he was appearing in a play, a Neil Simon play. You were asking about anti-Semitism uh, earlier on. We're sitting in this playhouse in London and it's Neil Simon play. And we're sitting down and a woman behind says, I didn't know that Neil Simon was Jewish. <laughs> and this is what you're dealing with. That's part of England. That's probably equivalent to Wisconsin or somewhere. I don't know. But it's like, you know, there is England and there's, there's the hip places and the, there's places from the wild that you just don't know what's going on. So anyhow, I said to Gene Wilder the next morning we were staying at the hotel, I said, why don't you do a musical of the producers? It's so obvious. You've already got music in the film. And he said something that was really interesting. He said, well, he said, Mel always liked to keep that close to his chest. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And that's at least 10 years before it was, I mean, a long time before it was released. Interesting, because Gene Wilder was amazing in the film. Absolutely. With the, uh, oh, without going into the producers. So you have this run, you decide to take a break, and then you ultimately don't come back. Yeah, we did come back. We did an album with um, we did an album with 10CC. They were back in the 90s. We got a deal with a Japanese company called Avex, which was unbelievable. It was a I think Eric was very impressed with that management. I think they got a fortune. They sold every song I think on it, to publishing for ten thousand pound a song. So that's like fifty or sixty thousand. They got another few hundred grand for the album. They were flown to Japan. They had like a revival, but making of the album, the boys hardly spoke to each other. One did it in their studio, the other one did it in the other. It was a complete concoction, a total disaster. And uh, I didn't really get out of the business because I was always publishing all the American music anyhow. And then I came, in 1992, I bought a property in Rancho Mirage and I became a snowbird. And from there, I went to see the Indian Wells Tennis Garden, which was used for three weeks in the year um, for um, tennis. Very nice tournament. And my wife, Carol, said, what the hell did they do with this the rest of the year? Well, they don't do very much. And the staff are very happy. The staff are working for eight weeks in the year and they're on this, that, and the other. And I said, it's a marvellous amphitheatre. So I got hold of R Raymond Moore, and Passerelle, who's the tennis player from America, Charlie Passerelle. And I said, look, why don't we put some concerts on here? I knew they'd put one thing on, which was pretty much a disaster, but um, it was, I think they put Bocelli on and it was all wrong. And I then got hold of a William Morris agent called Peter, whose second name has eluded me on a Peter Grosslight? Thank you. Peter Grosslight, who's absolutely charming, lovely guy, great golfer as well. And uh, I, I got the stadium to agree that I could be an agent for them to bring acts in. So my first act was the Eagles. And we get the Eagles and then we have a meeting there and they say, we can't charge $250 a ticket. 
I said, why? You've only got the wealthiest community in America. Why should we charge 100 when everybody else charges 250? Anyhow, we sold out three nights on the Eagles at the price. Then we put the Who on, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, um, Louis Nigel, the Who, you know, that was the, the, we did with all those concerts. And all they were worried about was the tennis surface and God knows what was happening. It wasn't really equipped as a stadium. But of course, as I said, without, I thought, right, the answer is this. Barbara Streisand won't work open air, right? This one won't do that. This one won't do the other. I said, right, we're going to do what Wembley Stadium does. We'll get a roof put on the place and then we can work it all year. We don't have to worry about 120 degrees. So I get a, an architect who tell for $20 million, they could do a roof that closes, right? But there were 20 people, or no, 10 people involved, Raymond Moore and 10 or 15 other, a committee. And of course, the committee rejected it. And now in Palm Springs, they have got a 10,000 arena, which has been put up. And they could have had it easily. And I, I saw world championship boxing matches, everything coming from there. Anyhow, my three years expired as an agent. It wasn't renewed and they've not had a concert since. So that was 15 years, I how many years ago? And now I'm just writing books and doing other things like that. Okay. In the book, you famously say a few things. You were a big spender. You lived large, you drove expensive cars, and you were a big gambler. So did you piss away all the money? <clears throat> well, um, not really piss away all the money. Because of my accountancy training, it allowed me to have control. I wasn't the gambler that... A friend of mine had a horse, and uh, he used to back the horse. He was, a, he was a big gambler. And the horse won seven races on the row. On the eighth race, it also won. And I said to the guy's wife, I said, well, you, you must have made a fortune. No, we lost. I said, why? He put every single bit of his winnings on the next, and the next, and the next. That's what you call a gambler. When I was a gambler. I'd have £400 on me. If I lost that, that was it. And the other thing about gambling, when I went with Herman Soymitz to Las Vegas, which is relevant to show business, they, it was at the Dunes Hotel. They said, we're comping everything you've got, Mr. Lisberg. All food is free. Your room's free. Anything you want. And by the way, you and every member of the band will have a credit of $100,000. That's in 1966. I don't know what that is worth today. And I said, no way. I said, and yeah, I didn't say no way. I said, oh, thank you very much. If we need it, we'll ask you. And uh, that, that, so all the people like Frank Sinatra or Elvis or anybody, I mean, the, the Colonel was an enormous gambler. Brian Epstein was an enormous gambler. But these people were, I mean, they, they were permanently in, in money. I mean, I think ultimately probably somehow the Colonel got, got out, lost it. I don't know. But um, no, I wasn't, uh, I didn't. I didn't blow it all away. My son said to me two days ago, he said, well, maybe you got something right. I said, why? He said, because now if you put all your money away and you had 100 million in the bank, you wouldn't have been able to go around the world because you, you wouldn't be 
fit enough or because uh, I decided when I was 50 that I was going to go around the world. I wasn't going to wait till I was 80. So that was my mentality. And I think somewhere in between the two is right. I don't think that what I was doing was right. It was excessive. And um, <clears throat> I can criticise myself for that. I got carried away. I had Joseph and the dream coat, um, which they came to me and I had that. I tried putting it with 16 people who all rejected it. Now, if I'd have got the publishing on that, uh, when I met Tim Rice in 2004, he told me that his earnings from, I think it was a quarter or a half on Joseph, which had been rejected, was £390,000. That was 25 years after. So, you know, if I'd have had all that money, I don't think I, I would have had yachts. And, you know, there's no limit. You'd have aeroplanes. You'd If you were acting stupidly and you would think you're infallible, you'll believe in yourself. You start becoming like Robert Stigwood. You know, you think you're, everything you do is, you know, you're, or for Cameron Mackintosh. All these people are like kind of egomaniacs in a way. You know, they become in a different league. I never got into that league. I don't think Epstein was in that league either. I think he had the money, but I think he was just, he had a lot of problems. When I met him, Klein had tried to get me to see him about getting a piece of the Beatles for him, management of the Beatles. Would would I speak to Brian? And uh, if I did, Alan Klein, in his imitable manner, would give me a percentage. Um, so I went to see Brian Epstein in his flat in Belgravia. Meeting was at 6.30 at night, and I walked through the door, and it was all white, white walls, everywhere was white. And uh, I said to him, look, are you interested in Klein looking after the Beatles? You want to sell it? And his face went to the same shade as the walls. <laughs> you know, he obviously, Klein had obviously been busy around all the, everywhere else, you know what I mean? And it was, um, he was, it, that was the end of that conversation. We just carried on from there. But I, I thought that, it's funny, I thought the Beatles would end up with Alan Klein somehow. Because you were talking about how do you protect yourself? Well, against a one person from Manchester, that's one thing. But from people with the experience and the tentacles of Alan Klein, it's not easy to avoid. I mean, he got the biggest in the world. Okay. So how many of the people from the past do you still talk to? Right. Um, I speak to uh, Lowell Cream, Peter Noon, Tony Christie, John Lees from Barclay James Harvest, Harvey Andrews, who's an English songwriter. Um, unfortunately, Peter Grosslight passed, but I was very close with him. Um, Danny Batesh, who I was partnered with, speak to him regularly. Um, I've not spoken to Graham for a while. Um, is there any bad blood there? Um, well, it, it's um, not on my side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were brothers. We were brother-in-laws. We, we stayed together 55 years, and then, unfortunately, we got divorced. So I don't know. It wasn't to do... It wasn't, um, it wasn't um, my idea i mean it wasn't it was kind of inexplicable to me 
But I suppose that, that people have their reasons. And if you analyse all the bands that split up and all the split-ups that happen, then these things happen. Not usually after 55 years, I don't think. But you never know. I still think he's a very talented person, and I, I don't think he got it right, but that's life. I have to ask, since we covered this earlier, was the split about the money? No. Oh, this all split with Graham. Yeah. No, I don't. No, well, no, I no, I wish it would have been. Money's easy. If he said, "Oh, I just want money," <clears throat> it wasn't that. It was um, there was a lot of. I, I don't really, to be quite honest. My feeling is that somebody got at him, and I don't know who, and I don't really care. I think somebody tried to. Um, tried to poison him against me. I think but my track record, I think, speaks for itself. I was surviving before I met Graham. You know, so I think I helped. Um, but as I say, managers aren't looked at very kindly. I mean, Peter Grant wasn't. Um, the Colonel wasn't. Brian Epstein wasn't. Andrew Walton wasn't. I mean, <clears throat> where do you go? I mean, it's... yeah. You create an act, they become the biggest thing in the world. And then I had a thing, Robert Graves, a famous writer, he said, a, f a friend is like an ass. He waits 30 years to give you a good kick. <laughs> and that applies to a lot of people in our business. <laughs> On that note, Harvey, I think we're going to leave it. I want to say your book is very readable. A lot of these books are just, you know, people who have nothing better to do. But if you're interested in this era, if you're interested in what Harvey talked about, there are many more uh, facts and stories in the book. And in a couple hours, you'll finish. It's a great read, which is why I wanted to talk to you. In any event, Harvey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to my audience. It's been a great pleasure. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.